and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by Kobus van Staden of Witts University in Johannesburg, South Africa. A very good afternoon to you, Kobus. Good afternoon. Kobus, we're going to start the new year in January here, 2016, with a look at the environmental story between the Chinese and Africa. And this is particularly important in light of last year's FOCAC summit that occurred, where environment was actually pushed down on the agenda, much lower than a lot of people had anticipated. But when we look back at 2015, it really was a turning point in the relationship between the, the, the two sides, in part because of the major announcement that came out of Beijing related to Ivory, which was the announcement of a ban that does appear to be underway in the policy process, although we don't know about the details. But now we're also going to talk a little bit broader and focus on the bigger environmental issues related to the wildlife trafficking uh, industry and also about the consequences of Chinese industrialization in Africa and what that means for the environment. So we're joined by two folks that we're thrilled to have on the show. Let's first go up to Beijing, where Li Nan, she is the China Green Shift Initiative. Uh, she, she's a policy manager with China's Green Shift Initiative, which is part of the World Wildlife Fund for Nature in China. Li Nan, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. And also in Beijing, Zhou Fei, who is the head of Traffic China, uh, which is the Wildlife Trade Research Network. He also joins us on the line from Beijing as well. Zhou Fei, thank you so much. Yeah, it's my pleasure. Thank you. Linan, let's start with you and take a little bit of, uh, uh, you know, the high-level view between China and Africa when it comes to the environment. There is a lot of skepticism in Africa, and I think deservedly so, about China's intentions when it comes to the environment because of its credibility. So the problem we have when we listen to people like Xi Jinping or Li Keqiang and some of the other Chinese leaders when they talk about green technology and they talk about their commitment to environment policy, you are living in a city that has probably the worst air quality in the world. China, in terms of its polluted rivers, uh, I think has 10 of the top 20. Uh, China's environmental record is quite disconcerting. So when we see China now going out into the rest of the world, particularly in Africa, and we see now increased industrialization, we've been following the wildlife trafficking story for a very, very long time, it's understandable that people have concern about what's going to happen to their communities and their countries with, with respect to the environment. In your role at WWF in Beijing, do you get the sense that the Chinese understand people's concerns about China's role in places like Africa when it comes to the environmental impact? Okay, thank you for the question. It reminds me about we when we have the uh, our event on seizing the opportunity for China-African collaboration, which was held in Johannesburg on 1st December. Uh, if you know, that is the worst day in this winter uh, in Beijing in terms of the air quality. But I think uh, we, we, we share those kind of ideas with our participants to say we Chinese, especially colleagues from China, we, we went to South Africa on the day that but we leave our family in the worst or dirtiest day uh, weather in Beijing. Why? Because we want to sh tell people that the the um, the event, the development model cannot be copied in Africa, cannot be just follow the rules that both Chinese and also a lot of 
Western country people, Western people are suffering from pollute first and then clean up later. So that is not sustainable. That's why WWF we think that the sustainable uh, environmental sustainability should be integrated into the cooperation between China and Africa. But on the other hand, I also want to tell the audience to say, Ch- Chinese, we are not a person. You know, we we just to keep our home clear but polluted others that is not the way that china is doing but the question is how we learn from the past experiences and we learn from it and we avoid uh repeating those mistakes in africa and in other countries so that is why we we go to africa to south africa to share the uh experiences and we talk with decision makers in africa to ask them to do more strategically thinking in planning process kobus you just heard that position from li nan and something that we've heard before i guess my skepticism comes and with all due respect li nan i i totally see what you're saying but Cobus has brought up an interesting point in the past, and I'd like to get his reaction now, that Chinese companies tend to behave at whatever the level of governance is in the country that they're operating. So in Europe, for example, where there's very strict environmental regulations, uh, the Chinese behave consistent with European laws. Uh, but in those countries that lack that type of governance and, and legal infrastructure, uh, oftentimes Chinese companies are known for taking advantage of that. So, Kobus, do you think that what Linan is saying is feasible in countries like Congo, uh, like, uh, you know, we've seen problems in West Africa off the coast where there's very poor enforcement of fishing laws and whatnot. Do you think that's feasible that Chinese companies would actually respect those laws? It's such a difficult question to answer. I, I think, um, you know, to, to yes, to a certain extent, if there is if there is um, a groundswell or a clear demonstration of public pressure, and you know, if if, if the public makes clear what they want, um, then I think that that becomes more of a possibility. I think the problem is is that, especially in Africa, what, you know, kind of what people really are worried about is poverty and jobs. Right, kind of. So, um, you know, I think there's, you know, the 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 characterization of environmental um, concern as being a middle class concern as is, I think, to a certain extent unfair, um, because I think it, in reality, you know, kind of, uh, you know, that that's concern that runs ranges across many more kind of kinds of people than than we tend to think of in our in our stereotyping. But in Africa, I think that that is sometimes true. You know, kind of where, where if people don't have a job that was gonna put food on their table for next week, then they're not going to be worried about what, what their air quality is going to be like in 20 years. So I think that that is going to be the, the challenge is to, to connect environmental health with, with development. Um, and I think to a certain extent, China has been, you know, has been actually quite good at that in the sense that, I mean, one of the contradictions of China is that it, um, you know, kind of, it is putting in a ton of of dirty energy, um, and it's also putting in a ton of clean energy. Like uh, I've read that China puts in more sustainable energy, you know, kind of per year than any other country, and they have, and Chinese companies have made um, things like solar cells much more affordable in Africa. So there are, you know, um, sustainable energy project projects funded and and installed by Chinese by Chinese institutions. Um, up and running in Africa, and we are hopefully seeing more of them soon. Um, so I think you know, kind of, it's going to depend on on the kind of pressure that African governments actually apply. 
Um, Linan, I wonder um, do, to which extent do you do you feel um, that China can can actually lead the way on this? Do, do you see a kind of a groundswell in China pushing a popular groundswell pushing towards more environmental development, or is 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 um, is our public attitude still a little bit more mixed and muddled? Um. Um, I I would say that uh, China is serious about the investments in Africa, uh, not only from the uh, I think this is a win-win uh, collaboration. If China just because it's not a short-term cooperation between Africa between China and, and African countries, so for example, I would say we also uh, worked with Ministry of Europe. Environmental protection of China to develop a new program to really to select uh, a, a green environmental and also climate friendly technologies and products to Africa, which will be you know we we also look at the quality, we look at the standards, and also we should we think that should be affordable for African country African people. So I think that is not only the large scale investment, but also those uh, offline uh, or and also smaller projects that could be help African people uh, get out of the uh, energy poverty. Trophy, let's turn to you now talking about in the the public pressure that Cobus was bringing up with respect to the broader environmental relationship, but there does seem to be something happening on the wildlife and the animal trafficking side. And this is something that a lot of Western environmentalists seem to not understand very well, that there is a big change underway in China, particularly as it relates to uh, ivory. We've seen it, for example, in southern China every year with the dog, uh, the dog meat festival, that young people in China are, you know, rising up and saying across social media and actually in person to protest that the killing of dogs for for food is part of the the, the festival. I forget exactly where it was and what city, and I think it was Yunnan province. Um, but there does seem to be a different, a, a generational shift going on here. Tell us a little bit about what is going on on that side and what traffic's role in China to help push the policy towards a more humane and effective wildlife trading uh, policy. It's true that we are facing a, a, a surge in illegal trade in wildlife. It affects the, um, the elephants and rhino uh, in Africa and also some of the... Uh, but there, uh, there has been now a very strong intervention from China. Um, on, the, on the Chinese side, uh, the top leadership attaches great importance to the development of uh, ecological civilization. Now, what is uh, ecological civilization? Well, in, in, in very simple words, it means that reduce the unnecessary um, consumption of uh, including the wildlife consumption, such as uh, the ivory uh, and the rhino holes and the tiger bones. Um, Joe, Joe, do you? I wonder if you could unpack that slightly because the perception. Um, I think in the West and in, and in Africa, the African press that I've seen is that 
the you know kind of all of these announcements that you mentioned, and also the the smaller bands, like for example the the hunting trophy import ban, and so on, have have you know kind of all of these have happened and they they've been acknowledged, but but the 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 uh, perception is also that there hasn't the since the the announcement of the big ban that was announced by um, by President uh, Xi Jinping together with President Barack Obama um, in the U.S. there hasn't been a timeline a detailed timeline of the rollout of how the ban is actually going to work and when wh- when it's going to be implemented haven't been re- released yet um, from from the Beijing side how does it look like by when do, do you think we'd have we'd be able to get more information about this yeah that's that's true the, the, the ban for the time being is a is a is a uh, political uh, commitment uh, a commitment only so it's like a, it's a it's like a, a beautiful castle but it's in there um, there has been no timetable no roadmap uh, so WWF and the traffic are working in China to to help to facilitate a timetable and also to help uh, to land this political commitment on the ground. Um, uh, according to our uh, sources, uh, there are uh, a resistance from the, uh, the the faction of the government who are not in favor of, of this ban. So they uh, put forward various arguments try to uh, uh, delay the imposition of the ban. So our our efforts in China is trying to support the profession in the government and and uh, try to have this ban to land on the ground. And our prediction is that this ban is likely to to uh, to happen around uh, 2017. Oh, that late, 2017. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, Linan, you know, I guess it's hard listening to both to both you and Joe Fei, and also to hear kind of the Chinese pronouncements that when we talk about win-win development and we talk about China's commitment to the you know ecological environment with the 13th five-year plan and, and all of these kind of public pronouncements, but mm-hmm. then when you see on the ground what's happening and you try to reconcile those two, it doesn't, you know, China has been accused by very reputable researchers of clear-cutting forests in Cameroon, in Gabon, its deep sea fishing fleet is off the coast of, you know, is, is drift net fishing off the coast of West Africa. Shark consumption, even though it's gone down a lot, is still a massive problem off the coast of Mozambique. Lion bones in South Africa, obviously the elephant and the rhino trade. And you start looking into animals like pangolin. Uh, and, you know, all of these things add up, and in your head, just starts spinning with depression at what's happening, and this is all being tied back to one country. And then you look at the policy pronouncements and they don't reconcile with the reality. So I understand why a lot of people are skeptical of China. And not just because China struggles to communicate its intentions and its policies, but because of what they're actually seeing in reality. What's your thought about that that distance that exists between the public policy and the reports that are being delivered to you from the ground across Africa. First of all, I would like to say that there, 
they, they are, we, we do need improvement in terms of policy implementation. I think that is a kind of uh, universal challenge for all the uh, governments, uh, China included. And uh, I think uh, not only uh, in terms for the overseas policy, but also domestically, we also see that there's a lot of improvement to be done in China in environmental protection. However, I also want to say that international challenge should be and could be solved by international collaboration. We talk about those international wildlife trade, whenever it's sharks or every, I think China is uh, a lot of uh, research, identify China at the final destination of these goods. True, however, I think the source, the country have those source should, can improve the governance itself. And also the third, third country, which that the goods transfer from the original country to China can also improve their uh, governance across border governance. So I think uh, we we don't avoid, we 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 have to admit that China has a lot of things to improve. However, it's not just if China can do its best. It, things could still be there. So it needs international collaboration. And also not only government agencies, but also uh, multi-stakeholders involvement, including local community, including international organizations like WWF, and also the companies and the media as well. I think that is so important uh, player uh, in these global challenges. Li Nan is the policy manager at China's Green Shift Initiative, which is part of the World Wildlife Fund for Nature in China. Thank you both for joining us uh, and for your prediction on the show uh, for 2016. Also, Zhou Fei, uh, who's the head of Traffic China, which is the World Wild- the Wildlife Trade Research Network. We've talked with traffic people from uh, South Africa and now with China to get a better understanding of what's happening Uh, in China in terms of what's ahead in the year for China-Africa environmental policy and what are some of the trends that are impacting Chinese decision-making in Beijing. Thank you both for joining us on the program. Thank you. Thank you very much. And Kobus, if people want to stay in touch with what we're doing here at the China-Africa Project and to keep following stories like the one we've covered today with a year-ahead look at environmental policy between China and Africa, what's the best way for people to stay in touch? Um, we, we do work across various platforms. Um, one of our main services is on Facebook. That's facebook.com slash China Africa Project. And there we curate a 24-hour stream of China Africa headlines. Um, so if you sign up, you'll get a, a steady diet of China Africa news in your in your inbox. Um, we are also on Twitter. I'm on at Stadnesk. That's S-T-A-D-N-E-S-Q-U-E. And you can find me on Twitter as well at E-O-Lander, E-O-L-A-N-D. Uh, We also have a newsletter that goes out every Monday with the top China Africa stories. Uh, So you can sign up for that over on our website at ChinaAfricaProject.com or on our Facebook page. There's a sign up button right there uh, in the top of the page and you can find that. And of course, if you want to follow this show, uh, a couple different ways. If you are behind the Great Firewall in China, which I know a lot of our listeners are, and you want people to be able to follow the show, it is available on SoundCloud with a VPN, but also you can get it directly 
directly from our, I, our iTunes hosting service, which is Buzzsprout. And I found that that works behind the great firewall, china.buzzsprout.com. You can get a direct link and you can listen to the show and download the episodes there because iTunes does not work. If you're outside of the great firewall, well, iTunes is the best way. Just type in China Africa in the search and we will come right on up. And we would be so grateful if you could leave a comment, a rating, uh, or just any kind of critique, questions, whatever you want. Uh, but any type of comment does help us and it helps other people uh, find the show uh, for the future. So we'll be back again very soon with another edition of the China in Africa podcast. Thank you so much for listening. <laughs>